From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined Science News Roundup. This week on the program, we're talking about the little tiny monsters of the present and the really big monsters of the past. We're also talking about the really scary things people do on Earth and the even scarier stuff that is out there in outer space. It's Undisciplined Science News Roundup, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Every few weeks on this program, on the Friday closest to the end of the month, we gather together a few of our favorite former guests to talk about some of the biggest stories in science, research, and exploration from the past month. And in true undisciplined fashion, we do this with guests from a variety of different backgrounds. Joining us today in studio is a veteran of the program and one of our very favorite guests, the Director of Marketing and Communications at the David Eccles School of Business, Sheena McFarland. Now, what is a business school executive doing on a science show? Well, Sheena is also a freelance science writer who has written about people who build amateur telescopes and those who have volunteered to leave their families for Mars. She has a degree in biology teaching and an insatiable interest in astronomy. Sheena, thanks for being on the show today. So excited to be back. Thank you. And also joining us in studio today is Lisa Aspinwall. This is her second time on the show and her first time on the monthly roundup. She is a Stanford and UCLA trained social psychologist and her research focuses on the ways in which people plan, control and revise their actions related to disease, risk and chronic illness with a particular interest in how people think about their genetic selves. Lisa Aspinwall, thanks for coming on to Undisciplined today. Thanks for having me back. And last but not least is One Pagan. He is a science writer and professor of biology at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. He has a PhD in pharmacology with an emphasis in neurobiology. His most recent book, Strange Survivors, is an absolute joy to read. One Pagan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start today, as we often do on this monthly segment of our show, by talking about space. A team of astronomers recently reported in Astrophysics Journal that they had watched a black hole shred up and swallow an entire star. This process is called tidal disruption, which makes it sound so much less terrifying than it actually is. The scientists involved, of course, called it really exciting. Guys, our universe is so big that even if we had every human on the planet stargazing with some really powerful telescopes, We'd still likely miss things like this, but this was caught initially by robotic telescopes that are searching the skies for amazing events based on algorithms. This is yet another sign that artificial intelligence is leading us to places we simply could not go alone. What did you think about this? I thought this was really amazing, um, just looking at how bright that event was um, and how it absolutely eclipsed every other star in the galaxy was pretty incredible. And I'm always fascinated by accretion disks, things people say all the time, right? But it's amazing to think about these superheated gases that then start acting like a fluid and how that changes in that very unique situation. I actually had a, a different and not terribly scientific take on the term accretion disk. I just thought the next time someone wants you to clean a bathtub or a shower, you would say, no, no, honey, leave that. It's an accretion disk. It's <laughs> There you go. <laughs> in my case, sometimes I get a little philosophical because in that particular case, that black hole is about almost 400 light years away, uh, meaning that it's new for us, but that actually happened 400 years in the past. And, and the same with every other star that we watch in this universe of ours. 
When this star and this black hole collided 400 years ago, the energy expenditure was about 30 billion times the energy of our sun. That's like the energy of several galaxies worth of stars. And, you know, when I think about the fact that we're on this little planet having a really hard time producing enough energy to satiate our needs without poisoning our environment, it just seems so much more pathetic because in the rest of the universe, energy is not a problem. It wouldn't be a problem here if we learned to harvest the energy of our own sun. I mean, efficiently. That is true. And I think that's part of it is that, yes, there's a huge amount of energy out there, but actually harnessing that and using that in any kind of real way is really the challenge. How how do we talk about black holes without just like completely freaking people out? Because this is like this is the stuff of nightmares. This wasn't just like a black hole sucking in some like black space. This was a black hole sucking in and shredding a star into a donut of smithereens. Maybe we, we don't visualize how terrifying this process is but when we think about a star. But have you heard about the term spaghettification? No, and I can't even say that. I'm pretty sure I botched it, but if you would fall into a black hole, let's say head first, the gravitational gradient between the length of your body, whether you are six feet tall or not, it's gonna, there's going to be a difference between the gravitational force in your head and in your toes. You will be stretched thin like a spaghetti. And there's some temporal things that they say that they, in, in your mind, it would take like, I don't know, hundreds of years, something like that. But essentially, you uh, die in installments, <laughs> as it were. Yes, definitely the best way to make this less terrifying for people. Excellent. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> but I, I mean, think nature is terrifying in many ways, right? Um, and this one is a way that is horrifying to think about and makes for great sci-fi, but hopefully in our lifetimes or in our Earth's lifetime, we don't encounter this, right? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy that we live in the outskirts of the galaxy. If we're ever to explore space in a more meaningful way, at least when it comes to human missions, we've got a real problem. Our DNA is likely to get shredded up pretty badly by the radiation of space. There are some organisms that are a lot better at protecting themselves from such genetic damage, and they might help us understand how to protect ourselves. Writing for the journal eLife in October, a research team from the University of California at San Diego described a protein shield that forms like a fluffy cloud of cotton candy around the DNA of tardigrades, protecting that DNA from radiation. You guys, fluffy clouds of cotton candy around DNA. It's adorable. I am a massive fan of tardigrades. I think they are absolutely adorable if you ignore the scolex at the front of their face. Um, other than that, and I just was like, of course, they're going to get even cuter because now they are filled with cotton candy. But also so fascinating that these creatures have evolved in this way. It makes very little sense that they evolved on Earth because we just don't have these stressors that they are facing that they are prepared to tolerate very well. So I always think of tardigrades as our little alien visitors who are hanging out and being super adorable. And a lot of people think they might be alien visitors in one way or another. Their DNA is that different than ours. Yeah, they always think of these like mean green men who are going to come and attack us. But maybe they're just going to be adorable and hanging out in our water systems. It's fine. The species studied for this report was R. very ornatus. That's not going to be surprising to anyone who studies tardigrades because that is the species that is given tardigrades the reputation of being like the microscopic equivalents to Chuck Norris. 
But one of the things I appreciated about the study is that researchers spent some time looking at another tardigrade species uh, that's H. exemplaris. I think that a lot of times we hone in on model organisms that are just like one species, like it's one species of yeast or it's one species of roundworm or one species of mouse. And we lose perspective on what might be possible in that same genus or family of organisms. We do this in human beings, too. We look at one group of human beings that can be problematic. Absolutely. It's a little bit like in, uh, from a pharmacological perspective, when you go to the doctor, what they prescribe you, it's uh, a medication that works for most people at that particular dosage. So it's uh, like the one-size-fits-all uh, idea. So in the same way, there's so much variety in, in biodiversity that two closely related organisms can present widely different physiologies and, and particularities that make them interesting research subjects. At least to me, it's more interesting when we look at different groups of organisms or different groups of people and we actually see the same thing. I mean, that's like more compelling. Yeah, Lisa? Well, interestingly, the answer to that question is really hard to know because most research on human genetic contributors to disease is done with uh, samples of European origin. And so for many major forms of cancer, like prostate cancer, the genetic determinants are understood poorly in different ethnic groups and are known to be different. For example, for African-American men, the con contributors to prostate cancer are different. And so when you look at equity in genetics and health research, it is, it's not there. And that's a real issue when you're developing targeted and precision forms of medicine when what works for many people may not work for all. That is starting to shift slowly, right? I mean, we were at least a little more aware of this and it's starting to be implemented into study design now, right? To a certain extent, it's really limited by people's trust in the system that their genetic material is going to be used purely for research purposes and for medical improvement, and not for things like eugenics. Um, and so there's a scientific trust issue that I think contributes substantially to lack of participation. And so people have to design the study and its recruitment methods sensitively, but also overcome a great deal of public mistrust. The groups that we need to build trust with are the groups that have been marginalized for generations upon generations. That's a heck of a catch-22. It used to be even worse because uh, the medical profession was built on the physiology of men. Women were not even considered when thinking about treatments and whatnot, and even children were considered miniature adults. Uh, and we now know that, they're, that they're bi even biochemistries are different. Right. And you have that gender split. But I also think when I think of the African-American community and scientific testing, the two things that come to mind are Henrietta Lacks, whose genetic material has been used uh -huh. forever with no permission. And then I think about the Tuskegee syphilis experiments and how horrific those were. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that has left an indelible memory in the African-American community with trust of scientists. Yeah, and I can give you an additional example. I'm Puerto Rican, born and raised in the island, and in the 1950s, I think, 50s or 40s, there were unauthorized experiments giving women anti-fertility drugs to try to reduce the population and things like that. You mentioned that a lot of the medical research had been based primarily on men, and my understanding is that the argument is that you wanted to remove the menstrual cycle and its influence on hormones from these studies, but what was neglected, of course, was that maybe things didn't work the same way in women in the first place. 
it's even extended to biomedical research. Uh, most of the studies that they do, for example, in rats, uh, they're done in male rats because of the same rationale. And it's, it's a fundamental problem that needs to be well solved, and it's beginning to be solved. But, but still, uh, it's a little too slow for my taste. There's actually one really interesting example of research on prairie voles, believe it or not, so to go from tardigrades to prairie voles, uh, where uh-huh. people were interested in how people respond to stress. So that's where the fight or flight response came from. This is work that Shelley Taylor did with her colleagues at UCLA. And they found that if you simply studied female prairie voles, what you got was a model that they termed tend and befriend. So rather than fight or flight, it was stick around and help. Uh, So it led to really different conclusions about the behavioral and physiological and health consequences of the stress response based on gender. Let's move from the animals of the modern day to the animals of the past. We don't talk about dinosaurs nearly enough on this program, but we have been jogged to do so today by a really interesting study published earlier this month in the anatomical record that asked and sought to answer a key question about dino survival, which is how did these huge animals thermoregulate. And folks, this is a really interesting question because the more respiring cells you have, the more heat you create. And if an animal is really large and also lives in a hot habitat, which many dinosaurs did, that can be a really big problem. But the answer for dinosaurs, it turns out, is not one answer. It's a bunch of different answers. Fascinating, yeah? Absolutely. I loved thinking about a Diplodocus panting like a dog to cool down, right, after a long run. It's it's adorable. It is, in fact, adorable. Also, I'm thinking about how terrifying it had to have been to see a T-Rex moving air through its mouth like a bellows to kind of cool down and just making it that much kind of scarier looking, I would think. But I think it's really fascinating they've been able to find the traces of these blood vessels to figure out where they were and get to this conclusion, which is amazing that's been recorded in the fossil record. Now that I think of it a little bit more, wouldn't that be bad for a T-Rex to be noisy while it was hunting? Right. I'm also very convinced that a T-Rex is actually a scavenger and not a hunter. Um, Its silly little arms just doesn't really work for me. And I think with how big its scent sensors were um, in that part of their brain, I think that was probably out scavenging rather than hunting. But yes, but it would be bad if it it was in fact a hunter, probably not a great idea. Well, it would have given more precedence to the fact that it would have to be a really good hunter if it was also like bellowing through its mouth to keep itself cool all the time. It would have to be that much better as a hunter. When you say this, though, this might actually lend even more credence to the scavenger theory, which is gaining popularity about the T-Rex. Yeah, but I, I still like Jurassic Park movies. Agreed, 100%. And I'm, glad the, and I'm really glad the raptors don't have feathers because I know that was probably accurate, but it totally makes them not as scary as they should be. <laughs> there is a concept in biology called Cope's Rule, which suggests that animals in a lineage tend to get larger over time. One of the forces that pushes back against the rule is the problem of thermoregulation. But this study is evidence of nature pushing back against this in many different ways by coming up with many different strategies to allow animals to get bigger. I love it when a bunch of different theories come together. For instance, the T-Rex like might have been a scavenger and this might be evidence of this. Cope's rule has been pounded on pretty hard over the years, but this is evidence of nature finding many different ways to allow animals to grow. It's cool when theories come together, yeah? Yeah, it is. I mean, biology is a science of exceptions, and nature has an uncanny ability to bend the rules, as it were. 
Let's move away from biology. Let's talk about technology. ScienceNews.org this month carried a feature about the growing risk of guns that can be built using 3D printers. These guns aren't very good right now, and that's sort of created an unusual situation in which policy and regulation might actually get ahead of technology. And that usually doesn't happen. Usually the technology is up front Mm -hmm. and then the policy and regulation has to catch up. What struck you about this? This was more terrifying than the black hole. I I completely agree. This would leave no trace. And so some of the forensic evidence, I mean, admittedly after the fact, but it is very important for justice and for preventing future crimes to be able to link weapons to a crime scene and that plastics wouldn't function in this way is terrifying, uh, not to mention issues of involving metal detection and other security risks. Right. And at some point, technology will catch up, right? They will be able to make incredibly effective guns with a 3D printer. We've already seen exponential growth in quality in 3D printing from when it was first introduced to now. I mean, I can't think of the number of 3D printers we have available to students all the time on campus that produce some really awesome prototypes for businesses and everything else. But as with all things in science and technology, they can be used for good or for evil. And I think that the ability to make a weapon that is untraceable, that isn't catchable in you know a security line, that kind of thing is really a very terrifying thought. Technological advancement and scientific advancement move so fast these days that often we are rushing to catch up with laws and rushing to catch up with the kind of ethical frameworks. Uh, I'm thinking here about CRISPR. The technology and the things that we can do with these technologies has moved so much faster than our laws have. And that's created a situation in which the science can be fairly easily exported across borders, but laws can't be easily exported and ethical frameworks take a really long time. Do we need a whole nother field devoted to like keeping ahead of the game and predicting where technology and science is moving so that we can predict where the regulation needs to be? Or are we kind of stuck in this game of catch up for the rest of humankind? It's hard to say. I mean, for, for me, short of developing something like uh, like the Minority Report short story and movie to, to predict where crimes are going to occur, uh, it's going to be a very hard proposition because uh, the current methods that they use, like, okay, scientists are going to declare a moratorium on X research. It's, it's not going to mean anything in this case that uh, pretty much anything can be downloaded uh, from the Internet and instructions or something. I agree that we need something else, some other mechanism, but at this point in time, I cannot even begin to imagine how can we achieve that. And this is maybe a cynical take on this, but I think if we were to ever form such a coalition or group, it would be used to then implement that and commercialize it, right? It wouldn't be to regulate it. It'd be really hard to not have that commercial motivation to do that work. Agree with the minority report, kind of how do you predict crime? But also, I don't think that there's enough altruism out there to say, let's then regulate the thing that we haven't invented yet, because someone's going to say, well, then we should invent it and make a lot of money off of it. Well, one model uh, exists for the study of genetics and the use of genetic knowledge, and it's ELSI, the Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications. It's a branch funded by the National Institutes of Health. I don't think it's going to be minority report-like in its prediction, but it really is trying to anticipate everything from data and tissue banking to precision medicine. How will these things be used? Could they be misused to harm people and deny them services? That's at least one, one model. And it's a model with a really cute acronym, and Elsie is adorable, so it doesn't, sa- it doesn't, doesn't sound like minority report. Yeah. Undisciplined, the adorable edition. Everything we're talking about today is adorable. And so let's talk about something that's completely adorable, toes. 
Okay, that doesn't really work. Researchers have observed that artists who were born without arms and thus paint with their toes have unusual neural patterns in their brains where individual toes took over discrete territory. I am fascinated by this. I think it opens up some really amazing territory in terms of people who use their bodies in different ways than others. I'm thinking, for instance, of the ways in which some blind people have learned to use clicking noises to create a form of echolocation that allows them to perceive environments that are only perceivable to most of us through vision. This would align with some research in shrews, which can see with their whiskers, but the neural patterns that they perceive with are similar to the neural patterns that other mammals actually see with with their eyes. I'm sure there's other examples. What were your thoughts about this particular study? So this is a really interesting example of what's called neural plasticity, of something developing differently because it's being used differently. Uh, and it turns out you also see this among uh, violinists, where not only are people using their hands and fingers more often, but not only the motor movements, but also the sense of touch and depth is different. Uh, and I had a real resonance to this story. I used up all the nine lives on my wrists many years ago. So I actually use a computer mouse with my feet. So now I want to run out and get a foot map and see if different regions of my brain are occupied by the mapping. Wait, that's a thing? There are computer mice for, like, are these designed or did you have to, like, come up with this contraption yourself? Uh Half and half. There's a, a Center for Assistive Technology where they send you if you're able to keep working and you just need some other way to do it. And it's called a jelly bean button. It looks like the Staples Easy Button. And you can Velcro it to a knee. You can do it to your, your foot. And it's very challenging initially. <laughs> but, but you figured it out. Your brain has done a really good job of being flexible here. How are we not studying you, Lisa? <laughs> One thing that I will say that, that Lisa brings up that I think is really interesting is that you did this later in life when the scientists in the study were saying that this happened maybe largely because it happened from birth. These were thalidomide babies that were born without arms, and so they had to immediately adapt without arms. So I'd be very interested to see what your MRI shows when you're using your feet for mouse purposes to see if you can, at an older age, be able to have your brain plasticity change like that. Well, the more plasticity, the better, because we do know that we lose some neural function of our brains as we age, and plasticity can be a workaround for that. In the time we have left today, I wanted to know what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Let's start with Sheena. So I saw this recently, and it is looking at adolescents who grow up in areas with poor air quality end up dealing with stress significantly worse than those who grow up in good air quality. And I think that is so pertinent to Utah because of our air quality issues and our high suicide rates, depression rates, anxiety rates among teens. And I thought that was just a really fascinating moment. And Lisa? Mine is on the social neuroscience of face perception and particularly how people respond to faces of ethnic groups other than their own under conditions of economic scarcity. This is a chilling set of studies from social neuroscience that looks at the idea that when people are threatened in terms of economic scarcity, they will take longer to register a different human face from their own group as a face. And you see this in the electrophysiology, you see it in regions of the brain devoted to facial processing, and I think it can account for how something like dehumanization works. You're literally not seeing someone as a person in the way you ordinarily would. The good news is we don't do it all the time. The good news is that there are well-known interventions to rehumanize people and get people to think about 
group membership more broadly and cooperatively. The scary thing is that it's fairly easy to invoke. And let me ask a follow-up on that. Do we know, is there an age differential? I mean, we were just talking about plasticity over time. Do we see it as much in youth as we do in adults? I don't know the answer to that question. Most of the participants are going to be traditional college student age. There is a literature on aging and stereotypes where as we are less able to monitor and inhibit what we might want to say that's not socially desirable, that people express more stereotypes with aging. But this is unusual because it's not a belief that people are bad. It's that people are not registering as people in your brain while you're being exposed to faces as part of these studies. Wow. And One. Okay, I have two very brief news pieces that got my attention. The first one, and this is not a new phenomenon, but they discovered recently a type of frog or toad in the Congo that they can actually shape themselves and mimic the shape of a venomous uh, snake. And this is a very common phenomenon in nature because they use appearances to deceive possible predators. And that I've always found very fascinating to me. So the second thing that I uh, saw is that there's been a resurgence on certain experiments that were done in Mars in 1976, the Viking missions, uh, in which they sent three experiments, and one of them gave uncertain results that actually gave some people the thought of that they, we discovered life on Mars. And there were some pro and cons with very good arguments on both sides, and there seems to be a resurgence of for a reexamination of that data. We're going to have to leave the discussion there. One Pagan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. And Lisa Aspinwall, thank you. Thank you. And Sheena McFarlane, great to see you again. It's always a great time. Thank you so much. We broadcast Undisciplined every Friday on Utah Public Radio, but if you miss us there or you live outside of Utah, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts, and our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.